I am home again. My house seems too large, too empty. In the silent hollow, I fill vases with flowers, flowers for the kitchen windowsill, cornflowers, lavender, nasturtiums, flowers for the bedroom, geranium, roses, and some for the table. The old posy ring brims full, and in the stillness of the blooms, there travels birdsong without, and words within. Written in December 2014, after a family visit in Timaru. Mandy Henderson. Welcome to Tea, Toast, and Trivia. Thank you for listening in. I am your host, Rebecca Budd, and I am looking forward to sharing this adventure with you. Living in the reality of COVID-19, travel has been curtailed. I have found over the past months that travel is possible through the alchemy of technology, which will explore new horizons through the eyes of a friend. As Marcel Prost reminds me, the real voyage of discovery consists not in seeking new landscapes, but in having new eyes. Today, I am traveling to New Zealand to meet up with my blogger friend, Mandy Henderson. New Zealand is an island country in the southwestern Pacific Ocean. We are going to spend time in her garden having tea and talking about a country that she has come to love. I invite you to put the kettle on and join the conversation on Tea, Toast, and Trivia. And I know you will enjoy Tea in the Garden with Mandy. Kia ora, Rebecca. I'm so glad to have this conversation with you. Welcome to my home in Christchurch, New Zealand. Thank you for your warm welcome to New Zealand. You are going into autumn as I go into spring. It's exciting to know that we are on two separate days. You are ahead of me, and I am here in the evening, and we are having tea in the afternoon simply because we can cross borders with technology. That's true, and it's one of the lovely things about having you as a blogger friend. I can enjoy your summer, and it's lovely to be able to have my afternoon tea in your company. What I'm excited about is that you are going to share the story of New Zealand through your eyes and how New Zealand became your home. Could you tell me where is New Zealand located? That's a wonderful question, Rebecca, and it's one that puzzles many people. I've discovered this on my world travels that most people don't know where New Zealand is located. I very much like this quote from Mark Twain, who visited New Zealand and in fact Christchurch, in 1895. This was what he said. All people think that New Zealand is close to Australia, or Asia, or somewhere, and that you cross to it on a bridge. But that is not so. It is not close to anything, but lies by itself out in the water. I think that says it all for many people. Where is New Zealand located? 
If you look on a world map and you go down to the bottom right-hand corner of the world map, that's where you'll usually find New Zealand. But unfortunately, many world maps forget to put New Zealand on there. So I'd like to challenge our listeners to find a world map and see if New Zealand is on it. If you're lucky, you'll find Australia and look east and a bit south and you'll find New Zealand. From New Zealand, next stop is Antarctica. Well, you are between the two A's, Antarctica and Australia. That's right. Another name for New Zealand, which we use very often now, is Aotearoa, New Zealand. Aotearoa means land of the long white cloud, and it is a Maori name for New Zealand. So we are the three A's, if you like. (laughs) The triple A. The triple A, yes. (laughs) That's where we're located. I remember reading that the first settlement in New Zealand was Maori. Is that correct? Yes, it is. But the first settlers wouldn't have called themselves Maori, as far as I understand. The first people to arrive in New Zealand were ancestors of the Maori, and they probably arrived from Polynesia. I've heard some people say from Tahiti, the Cook Islands. This is an area that I know a great deal about because when I was growing up in New Zealand, we weren't taught New Zealand history. And in fact, next year, 2023, will be the first time that New Zealand history will be a formal part of the curriculum. So my knowledge of New Zealand and New Zealand history is quite limited. And I would suggest that anyone who really wants to know a great deal about New Zealand history or the details looks up on the internet because that's what I have to do. I understand that there are three official languages in New Zealand. One of them is English, the second one is Maori, and the third one is sign language. I found the three of those all together were quite interesting because it engaged everyone. I think it's interesting too. Every year I watch items on New Zealand Sign Language Week. Unfortunately, the only language I know is English. And this is, again, another product of my education in Fiji and my education in New Zealand. We weren't encouraged in New Zealand to learn any Maori or even to try and pronounce Maori names properly. So these last 20 or so years that I've been living in New Zealand, again, I've enjoyed learning Maori words. As I said to you before, we say Aotearoa, New Zealand. My city, Christchurch, is often referred to as Otautahi Christchurch. The South Island where I live is known as Te Punamu, which means the water's green stone. I'm learning as I go along, and that's one of the lovely things about being in New Zealand at this time is that we are able to learn Maori names alongside the English names that we already know. The richness of language, I think that is what comes through when I talk to you. Maori is a language that is full of symbolism and beautiful thoughts like the waters of the green stone. I love that. Yes, I like the way 
that the names describe places. The river in Christchurch, the main river that goes through the city, is called, in English, it's the Avon. I always knew it as the Avon. Now I know it also as, let me get this right, Otokaro. Otokaro is a lovely word. The meaning of that is place of a game. And it's related to the children playing games on the riverbanks as their parents or their family were food gathering. Avon relates back to England, but it doesn't have the same resonance as Otokaro. I read that New Zealand has a town with the longest name in the world. Is this true? I think so. <laughs> I'm not going to attempt to pronounce it. <laughs> but again, it's that lovely idea of describing a place that is important. I love the fact that the names are like signposts or indications of where something is. And that is the beautiful part of knowing the Maori names of places. It seems that the words have a story that is attached to it, or an event, or a place. We talked about homecoming before. It seems that those words indicate home. Yes, it really does speak of home, very much so. Deep knowledge of the place, where you get your food, where you travel. So you can imagine what it was like, well, I can only imagine what it was like when the Maori people were not allowed to use their own language and how disorienting that must have been. A lot of people want to see Māori introduced into the main schools as a language. That hasn't happened yet. I think the first step is the history, and perhaps once we get the history, we may see some more encouragement of teaching of Māori. But they have Māori immersion schools where you taught in Māori. They're called Te Kura Papa, I think. They're quite popular and successful. When you go along the road... There's always a sign that says school. And for the first time, that sign is now in Maori and English. So you'll see school and kura underneath. It's taken so long to get here, but each little step is really significant. Little by little. Yeah, little by little. We've come a long ways, haven't we? We have embraced a new way of thinking about languages. And languages are very special. Yes. Very special and very important. Another factor is that the first settlers, the Maori, we often talk about those people as the tangata whenua, which roughly, very, very roughly, is people of the land. Now, that's not exact. Whenua has a lot of meanings. And the people like myself, who came later to New Zealand, we are called the tangata tiriti which means the people of the treaty or the people from the time of the Treaty of Waitangi. So my story starts after the Treaty of Waitangi. My story in New Zealand starts at that time. The first people in my family to come to New Zealand came here in March 1842, and they arrived in Nelson and settled there. They came under the New Zealand Company, which I think was established actually before the Treaty of Waitangi, but it wasn't until 1842 that the first of my family came to New Zealand on a ship called the Bolton. My ancestor was a stonemason. He applied to come to New Zealand with the New Zealand Company scheme, and he was one of the many tradespeople who were selected to come here. 
I think he was given free passage, but he also had some money to invest when he came to New Zealand. My ancestor was very typical of the first immigrants in that they were tradespeople. He was born in Bath, and the son that I'm descended from, he came from Chipping Norton in Oxfordshire. They were the first, and then another lot of my family came out in the 1850s, and they came to Christchurch, again as assisted passengers. They came from Paddington, Notting Hill, Isle of Wight, places like that. That ancestor was a tin man and a glazier. So again, a tradesperson. The next lot to come out were from Scotland. They were from Clackmannan. The father there was a carpenter, again, another skilled tradesperson. And then the next lot came out from a place in Cumbria. I don't know if I'm saying this correctly, but I love the sound of the village he came from, which I think is Langwathby. I don't know if there's anybody out there who says it differently, <laughs> but he was a blacksmith. And so those are my people who came to New Zealand. They were tradespeople. They were assisted immigrants. I don't think they were particularly poor, but they were looking for a new life, new opportunities. For the most part, they found them. The blacksmith was very successful. The ancestor who came to Nelson also was quite successful. Others didn't do that well, but they were fine. They were okay, and they had land, and they had their own houses. How they got their land, well, maybe it's best not to talk about that. But as far as they were concerned, it was legal. What was it that Maya Angelou said? I did then what I know. Now that I know better, I do better. I think that's what we're trying to do in New Zealand. We're all trying to do better. Why did your family come to New Zealand? A new country, a chance to own some land, to build their own house. I think they were incredibly brave. Some of them already had family out here, so a brother or a sister maybe, and they were obviously being encouraged to come and join the family. And that's been one of the interesting things about looking at my family history, realizing just how connected they all were. I think it was just that time people were looking around and thinking, how can I have a better life? How can I provide better for my children? Somebody would go off to New Zealand and then obviously send back a letter saying, why don't you come? And they came. This was a place that offered better opportunities. Well, it certainly did. And Canada as well. It was not easy. Very, very hard. And it wasn't really that easy to travel. We wouldn't consider it easy. But they persevered. And I always look back to their experiences if I'm finding life difficult or circumstances difficult. And I thought, well, if they could do it, I can do it too. Mandy, your parents lived in New Zealand, but you were also involved in world travel. You spent much of your time outside of New Zealand. Could you tell me more about your adventures and how these adventures brought you back to New Zealand? Well, my parents were born in New Zealand, brought up in New Zealand. Then the Second World War came along and my father was posted to the Solomon Islands to a very remote radar post with the New Zealand Air Force. Even though it was very remote, I think he found it very interesting he came back to New Zealand, and then a few years later, he married my mother. 
Times were quite hard in New Zealand then because it was after the war. Although my father had a good job as a butcher, he was actually looking for something different with a bit more opportunity and also a place where he could get a house. Initially, what happened was that my father and mother went on an overseas working tour to Fiji as newly married people, and they loved it. My father worked in the gold mines. My mother worked as a teacher. Then they went to Australia to have a look there. And eventually, they went back to Fiji. And that's where they stayed for the next 30 years, I think it was. I was born in Fiji in a small town called Lautoka. And I lived and went to school in Lautoka until I was about 12. And then my parents, like most parents of that time, who were what we called expatriates in Fiji, sent their children back to their home country for secondary education. So I was sent back to New Zealand, which was supposedly home, only it was like a foreign country to me. I spent five years at boarding school in New Zealand, then another three years at university, and then I went back to Fiji. And while I was there and working with the Department of Foreign Affairs, I was sent on a course to Oxford University. And there I met my husband. And that's what started all my years of travel. My husband, not at the time that I met him, but later on, he joined UNICEF. I went to meet him in Botswana. We got married in Botswana. And from there, we just went from place to place to place. And then finally, when the time came for him to retire, we said, where shall we go? And at that stage, I was really feeling the need to be home somewhere. And I decided that New Zealand was where I could be at home, which was actually a very selfish decision, but nobody complained. I've had to learn about New Zealand all over again. I've had to understand it as an adult, not as a child. I've learned to look into my family history and try and find roots here. And it's been a process. It's been a long process. And as you know, it was very deeply interrupted by the big earthquakes of 2010 and 2011. And at that precise moment, I suddenly thought, home, what does it matter? What does any of it matter? Just being alive is the most important thing. And after the trauma of the earthquake settled down, and I started to feel more comfortable about being in my city again. I started the search for a home all over again, looking at my ancestors, looking at places where they live, trying to trace their family tree, and just trying to get to feel the land all over again. I think I'm nearly there in, in that I don't really want to live anywhere else in the world. I've lived in the US, I've lived in Botswana, Zambia, Nepal, Egypt. India, Fiji, but I think this really is home. When we think of home, we think of completeness, but completeness comes in terms of family, friends, but the location is critical. We feel that we are part of the land. When I read your poem, you write, my house seems too large, too empty. And how did you fill that home? It was taking flowers from the earth and bringing it inside and filling my house and saying, this is where I belong. And I just want to read the last one. There travels birdsong without and words within. 
It's that connection with outside and inside. And you felt it when you wrote that poem, didn't you? I did. I very much did. I had just come from seeing my uncle and his family in Timaru and had come back to the house and it was very quiet. And I felt a very deep connection to family, not physically present, but family present, and also to the flowers and to the piece of earth that I was standing on. That was a moment of homecoming, real homecoming, yes. I understand that the kiwi is not only a fruit. Could you comment on this? When you asked me, or when you said that the kiwi is not only a fruit, and I smiled at that question because when I was a youngster in New Zealand, I don't really remember the word kiwi being used very much. If somebody had asked me, I would have said I was a New Zealander. And it's only in the last 20 years that I've come to understand and appreciate that word kiwi. And I will say I am a kiwi rather than I am a New Zealander. It's a very important little word. And as you said, it's not only a fruit. So I was really intrigued at the same time as you asked me this question about the word kiwi. Some young people who do a podcast had put out a poll on the internet about what the word kiwi means. This was asking an international audience. And the response was 50% said it was a fruit. 32% said it meant New Zealanders. 13% of people who answered the poll said the first thing that came to mind was Harry Styles because he sang a song, Kiwi. And then only 5% connected Kiwi with the bird. And then there was another example of kiwi that was missed out on the poll, and that was kiwi boot polish. It was called kiwi boot polish after the wife of the producer of kiwi polish. She was born in New Zealand, so he called boot polish after her. In relation to the kiwi fruit, that's also a really interesting story because, when again, when I was a youngster, we didn't call kiwi fruit kiwi fruit. We called them Chinese gooseberries marketing of the kiwi fruit has been so amazing that now when people hear the word kiwi, they associate it with the fruit rather than New Zealanders. The person who introduced the kiwi fruit to New Zealand was a woman called Isabel Fraser. She was a renowned, very famous teacher in New Zealand, and she'd gone to China to visit her sister who was teaching there. Isabel came home from her trip to China in 1904 with some seeds of the kiwi fruit. She had a nurseryman called Alexander Allison grow the kiwi fruit vine from these seeds. And that's how we got the kiwi fruit industry. I understand that New Zealand was the first country with universal suffrage. How did this come about? From my understanding, at one stage, somebody came out from the U.S., and talked about temperance at the temperance union meeting. In Christchurch, we had a woman called Kate Shepherd. She had come out to New Zealand with her widowed mother, and she was very interested in temperance. Kate realized that the only way that they were going to get any changes with regards to the demon alcohol was if New Zealand women got the vote. 
Kate and some of the others interested in temperance campaigned vigorously and sent petitions to Parliament asking for women to be given the vote. The third petition that they put forward was the one that succeeded. On the 19th of September, 1893, the Bill for Universal Suffrage came into effect or it was passed. I'm very proud of Kate Shepherd because she lived in Christchurch. That's the number one reason. And I'm also very proud of my ancestors who signed the petition. I love going through and finding their signatures on the petition. Today, what makes me laugh a bit is that I think more than wanting to vote, they were actually wanting to deal with the demon drink. (laughs) But never mind. She didn't get rid of drink, but she certainly got us the right to vote. And for that, I'm very, very thankful. Kate Shepherd is actually buried in Christchurch in a very small and simple burial plot. It amazes me, really, that such an important person has such a simple burial place. I've been to see it, and I've paid my tribute to her. Women, on the whole, do very well in New Zealand. We have a female governor-general and we have almost 48% of women in parliament. We have a female prime minister, and she was the second leader in the world to give birth while she was in office. One of the things that has helped me to feel more at home in New Zealand is having somebody like her as a leader, and to see so many women and pro-female policies And to see our relationship with the Treaty of Waitangi and governments trying to learn to govern in the spirit of that treaty and to work with that treaty and to try and make a different society, particularly from this present government's commitment to equality and kindness. And what I've seen in New Zealand in the last 20 years is how multicultural we've become. I like the direction that we're going. That's what I really do appreciate about being in New Zealand. And that's how change comes. In unusual ways, change has a life of its own, doesn't it? You think it's going to be one thing, and then all of a sudden, as it evolves, it comes into being in another iteration that we didn't anticipate happening. You were the one that introduced me to Catherine Mansfield, the poet. That's correct. To be honest, I didn't actually know she was a poet. At school, we were taught about her stories, and only a few of them. And it was only later in life that I realized that she actually wrote poems as well. I have visited her former home in Wellington, and it's a very charming and simple place. Like many New Zealanders, even today, they go away from New Zealand to pursue their careers speaks to the fact that culture, poetry, writing, dance, songs, creativity belongs to the world. It can't be held to a location. You put that beautifully, Rebecca. We need a location or a home to ground us, but then after that, we can fly. As we close this conversation, which I don't want to close, May I ask if you will come back again and spend time in Canada with me? I would love to do that, Rebecca. I would love to share another cup of tea with you and to spend some more time with you. 
And I've been very, very grateful to have you as my friend in Canada. And I've learned so much about your home in the world and also from your mother and your sister too. On our national airline, there's a little movie and at the end of it, it says Matewa, which means until next time. So I think that's what I shall say, Matewa, until next time, until we see each other again. Thank you, Mandy, for an amazing travel adventure. I came to New Zealand, but you took me to places that I didn't know we would go. And I want to thank you for this time together. Dear listeners, thank you for joining Mandy and me on Tea, Toast, and Trivia. Until next time we meet, safe travels wherever your adventures lead you.